Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Marta Vicente, professor of history at the University of Kansas, to talk about her 2017 Cambridge University Press release, Debating Sex and Gender in 18th Century Spain. Hi, Marta. How are you today? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for agreeing to join me. I'm so excited to talk to you. So how's Lawrence, Kansas today? It's very cold. It's like um, it's like 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which um, uh, I no longer, you know, I know, I, I mean, I long, no longer translate, you know, I used to think in Celsius, but I, I don't know, it's very cold for like anyone who's like, what is like minus something Celsius anyway. So, and yeah, I am. Um, that's, that's really cold. I'm not, I'm not, I'm still not used to this, but uh, it's cold. Uh, it's cold, you know, hospitals are like filled with uh, people with COVID and it's just business as usual for a while, you know. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, it's the the not to the the 2020 reality. Yeah. Um yeah, well, but we are uh, cozy inside and we're talking about something really interesting today. So let's uh not only can you and I have a little ray of sunshine, we shall give some sunshine to our listeners as well, hopefully. Um so my first task is to try to place this work in your academic narrative. So I'm looking at your earliest work on the late 18th century family, late 18th century family businesses, and it's not a gender history per se, but it certainly elucidates the important role of women in family businesses. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you, they're like women are an integral part of this story, and that in itself is worth noting, right? And then we see in the early aughts some your scholarship on women that was completely kind of au courant, right? Redefining what we understood to be conceptions of gender in early modern Spain, particularly Barcelona. And then the book we're talking about today seems to represent a much more modern exploration of the construction of sex like, in early modern Spain. So my question has two parts. Is this a fair characterization of your career? And uh, secondly, how did you decide to write this book? Yeah, it's totally, I mean, it's totally fair. And I, I will put you even back in time with my um, um, senior thesis, uh, which uh, in, 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 I, I did it in Barcelona. So it's called uh, Licenciatura, uh, which is the equivalent of a, 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 a senior uh, thesis. What I, um, I wrote about um, women in early modern guilds in Barcelona so the the guilds, which were the um, sort of like early modern version of the um, um, trade unions, let's say, um, um, uh, uh, and um, there I began to explore the uh, role or or the uh, place of women in the labor market in uh, in the. 1600s and 1700s, and something that was um, very um, 
surprising to me to find out is that I could see like women were everywhere. And yet, like my advisor at the time told me that, no, that 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 was not possible, that women were not, um, you know, guild members and that it was just um, space for men. And so this um, so the lack of representation of uh, this uh, aspect of women's uh, history in the um, historiography sort of got me like asking for more and 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 that from from the guilds then I moved to the uh factories um for my dissertation that became the book and uh and so uh, then at the root of all this uh, interest in gender was also um sexuality and and sort of trying to figure out why the absences of women in the historiography were also trying also translated into trying to understand the construction the construction of sex and gender in the period and that's what took me to um to this uh debating uh sex and gender in 18th century spain um is that answering your question yeah that's a that's a wonderful answer so i'm i'm guessing that your this move into kind of i mean it 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 it's it clearly just traces kind of a developing growing interest but i'm guessing there's also a source based component to your decision to move into this work um and you note in your preface that you stumbled across a criminal case and you know this this book happened so i want to hear broadly um, about what you're using in the book. And specifically, I want to know how a criminal case can lead to an exploration of the development of our understanding of how sex and sexed bodies are understood. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because sometimes, like um, and many times, the best sources are the ones that f- fall outside the logical place where one would go to search for like anything that has to do about uh, sex. So like, you know, one would like, go to uh, medicine records or like treaties and or um and uh, the fact was that um as I think I said in the um in the preface that um it was um it was uh, not expected to find this uh, uh, manuscript this uh it's it's a very long file um in the uh, criminal archive uh the, it's a Archivo Histórico Nacional, so it's the main historical archive uh, in Madrid, and so they had the uh, criminal sort of, um, uh, not archive, but the what it's called, well, the criminal files, and they, um, I was like. I was working, I, I was trying to put together a book on life series on gender in uh, 18th century Spain. And that was going nowhere, you know. Uh, like really, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, and so I went and um, I remember it, it was my birthday and it was in Madrid uh, in June. So I was in Madrid and it was what I was reading was so boring. And I said, like, you know. Uh, I, I I really enjoy Agatha Christie, and she has been an inspiration for my writing. So if anyone writes my book and and sees anything in her, it's a, it's been a, a victory, a success. Uh, so I thought, like, well, I, let's let's have some fun and say. So I, I just look at some criminal uh, files and and then I, I I saw this one that was um um. 
I don't know, I, f- I forget the number of folios, but it was just very long. And then I began to uh, read and um, I realized that um, this um, um, this particular document was about someone we now may um, identify as a transgender individual, a trans woman, because um, um, she, he, they uh, wanted to be uh, uh, an actress, but was also a tavern keeper. And um, anyway, I thought it was so fascinating. And so changed uh, focus and started writing the book. And actually, in, um, years ago, years before the book, this book came out, I, I wrote a manuscript just having the, this main character as, as the protagonist, and the whole book was about, about Leirado. And then my husband said, like, this is not going to sell. And, <laughs> and I, I look at it and say, well, this, this will sell in Spain and in Spanish, but clearly not for an um, uh, um, Anglo-Saxon, American um, uh, audience. So I changed it and then went back to the archives and looked for more documents that could provide like a solid context. Uh, and I think it's a better book. And so my husband was right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm uh, well, you know, there's a lot of this character in your book and I'm, I'm going to referring to him as a character. So we'll talk some more about that in a minute. Um, so, but the, one of the things that I find I, I like about this is you, uh, you have this very clear story you're telling, but it intersects with so many uh, issues, right? So there's, this is, first of all, um, an attempt to kind of right the wrongs that have been done to Spanish history, right? Bring, um, bring, like, bring to the forefront the importance of the Spanish Enlightenment. Um, this is the development of anatomy as a science, this newfound obsession with the body and its place in the natural slash scientific world, um, new developments in the history of medicine, the ongoing negotiation between like science and religion. And I'm making air quotes around science and religion, which you can't see, but they're mm. there. Um, <laughs> so, and uh, so I'm, I'm curious with like, what, what do you consider to be your most important histo- historiographic developments here? Like, what do you contribute? Well, you know, it's uh, interesting you are asking me that because, like, uh, uh, one inspiration for me was and is and was for this um, this uh, historian, uh, um, Lacour, I hope I pronounced it right, Thomas Lacour, who uh, wrote um, uh, the book, um, I think it's called Making Sex, right? Yeah, or Senya, is that right? Yeah, yeah Making Sex. Yeah. It's somewhere in my office, so I can't it's really in my, see it. It's yes. in maybe, my Thomas Lacour. And so his his basic uh, uh, main thesis is that the 18th century sort of like created this view of the um, sexes as um, two different the two the two two sexes model um, versus before with um, uh, a more sort of like an understanding or like, well, he called it like one sex model. So the understanding that um, men and women were different, but basically they share the same sort of like common uh, formation of like sexual organs, only that women were had the organs inside 
and men outside. But 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 yeah, the eighteenth century anatomists are like sort of creating this separation that no no that the genitals and the reproductive organs of men and women are totally different and separate. And in this uh, new view of our modern modern understanding of um, sex and and gender, so so Locker. Uh, as much as he's been so um, criticized, um, and there's a lot of there are a lot of scholars who um, believe that such a sort of like black and white picture is not um, correct. That before the 18th century, there were sort of a lot of uh, uh, physicians that uh, were um, sort of proposing this uh, two sex model. But uh, I think that in essence, his idea. Um, is um, correct, and I think that my contribution was to um, uh, show that um, how this is happening in detail in one country and the impact that it had in terms of like the European knowledge of like uh, sex and sexuality. So I think my contribution is showing how this actually happened. Because like Lacour provides a wide and broad um, analysis of, how, uh, you know, from the Greeks to Freud, and I don't, I don't think I didn't see anyone else doing this analysis in uh, in detail. So, uh, is that is that answering? Would you like to point out, can you explain to me why it is the case? Why debates about the sexed bodies are central to the understanding of this era? How is this a central issue to understanding the Enlightenment? Yeah, uh, well, uh, that's a fundamental question I think that the book um, addresses because I think it is in the 18th century that um, this, um, uh, what, uh, what in 20th and 21st century sort of like feminist thought uh, it's been called is like the heteronormative project, which um, I, I wouldn't want to put that exactly in those words for 18th century because it's totally anachronistic. But I think it's the idea, the, uh, the idea uh, behind is correct, that um, um somehow linked to new ideas and developing ideas on the the wealth of the nation the nations of by you know Adam Smith and uh, um that uh, a lot of the uh, men and few women of the enlightenment sort of uh, follow the illustrados in Spain that like the the growth and the wealth of a nation was based on the number of sort of inhabitants, productive uh, citizens of a country, then that translated like into the uh, assuring the growth of uh, the, the population. And that had to mean that uh, controlling the reproduction and uh, controlling, I mean, making sure that men and women sort of like procreate and so and in a way people who were uh had gender and 
ambiguity, uh, sexual ambiguity, were jeopardized in this project because they were not, um, you know, hermaphrodites as um, intersex people were uh, called. I mean, hermaphrodites were jeopardizing, for instance, this um, project because um, they were not, uh, they, they usually, I mean, they could not reproduce if they didn't have like complete um, 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 sort of reproductive organs. And um, uh, people who engage in uh, sodomy and they were not only, um, not only sort of like um, morally uh, to blame, but they were also not fulfilling a social function and they were like also um, social, if you want, uh, criminals. So all these uh, outcast uh, people who were outside this um, this margins were like sort of like con- um, control or, or try to bring into this uh, idea of two bodies performing their assigned function function in the reproductive process. And this also links um, to um, Foucault and his whole uh, notion of biopolitics and so how like uh, bodies are like uh, control for like a political uh, uh, purpose. So all this like mess uh, of ideas are actually thing, yeah, coming together in the 18th century. That's why I find I find the 18th century one of the most fascinating uh, centuries ever, and I don't think it has been given enough credit. <laughs> Because like uh, there there are not as many people working on historians working on the 18th century as other centuries, uh, but uh, but I, I I find that it is right then when everything clicks and we are still the children of the alignment whether we um, like it or not. So yeah, whether no matter how hard we fight it, in some cases, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. absolutely, yeah. And the I mean the the idea that there's a regular something natural about the body and that. And the government should follow nature. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of the there's a lot of uh, like there's a lot of nature wrapped into our understanding in the Enlightenment, and the sex body sits in there so nicely. Um, so I want to read um a passage, real quick, a passage before we start in to talk about kind of the body of your book. I just think it's beautiful. So you write the chiaroscuro, an important concept in European art during the Renaissance and the Baroque created an illusion of depth on a two-dimensional surface. The overarching light that the new anatomical findings were meant to create fell unevenly upon the reality of the lives of people in 18th century Europe. No matter how bright the light of order was, inevitably it would create this combination of lights and shadows adding depth and complexity to the Enlightenment project. The stories I'm going to tell construct a narrative that allows for shadows as well as lights, for recognition of the need for order, while also an acceptance of those who made such order, at the very least, problematic. Uh, And I think that's a really nice way to launch into the first chapter of the body of this book, The Anatomy of Sex, which looks at how anatomists and doctors of the era developed the idea that gender roles were linked to the traits of the sexed body. And now the central central figure here is Martin Martinez. Can you tell our listeners about Martin and his story and what, what his story tells us? Oh, I like it how you said Martin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, well, he is, uh, he was, um, um, and that's, um, uh, is one of the characters, one of the physicians that is like, uh, helped me to, um, um, sort of, uh, solidify this, uh, argument that I have that the Spanish Enlightenment not only existed, um, but it was, um, it had a European component because, um, this, uh, although it's an early alignment because it's the first half of the 18th century, but his ideas are um, not so much, not only attuned to the um, what was going on um, in the European sort of uh, anatomical theaters uh, and um, works of other uh, European uh, physicians and anatomists, but also uh, he um, engaged in uh, 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 with other physicians, uh, exchange ideas. He was part of this like network of um, um, scholars interested in medicine, and um, so he uh, 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 he was a uh, central in the um, the um, in the distribution of if you want of like uh, medical knowledge in Spain, but also um, outside uh, Spain. Um, and um, so I was uh, uh, fascinated by this, um, uh, uh, in, uh, by, by, by this uh, character. It was very coincidental that um, at the time when I was working on this, like there was a graduate student um here at the University of Kansas, um, who was also um, uh, who was also doing uh, his uh, dissertation and interested in Martinez, and so we began to exchange ideas, and then I got even um, a, a more sort of like complex view uh, of um, of who this uh, uh, man uh, was and how much his um, Ideas were influential in the development of the this uh, two sex um, two sexes uh, theory in Spain. Uh, so, is that a, I don't know. What... Yeah. Oh, great. So the two sex model. How does so the two sex model then has this idea that there are you know as you said there are two d distinct sex. It's not just that like there's the same basic sex and things either go well or, or not. And you, you know, like there are two distinct sex bodies, with two sets of genitalia. But then there's this idea that um, the, the way people are meant to behave in society matches their genitalia, that like that is mm -hmm. definitive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, which is, uh, and again, it's important to remember and uh, that's something that uh, I um, I emphasize in the book is that it's important to remember that uh, that they are like back and forth. So it's like they are trying to establish this new way of thinking and this new way of seeing the body. And there is this like there is this sense that they are into something new. So there is this self-awareness of novelty, which is, I find very interesting and cute because they, they, they constantly say like, well, we are in front of a new era. We are like the innovators, the uh, novatores. They will, and they, so they had this, so they, they, they push the argument and they try to, um, 
make it fit no matter what. But then suddenly, like, things go out of, you know, it's it's like, I don't know if you ever had this feeling um, uh, of, like, getting into a store that has one size fit all uh, dresses. Like, there were those uh, stores. Uh, actually, I, I went to one of those in Amsterdam when I was in Amsterdam. Uh, like, <laughs> was a, yeah. It was a fantastic place. I mean, it was like all everything was black and white. All, all the dresses. I mean, I love that city. At least when I went, I mean, it was just oh my god. Uh, no matter it rains, always rains. But um, always. But I like. And then, and then it was like black and white, and one size fits all. And then, but then, um, uh, you put on the dress, and it doesn't fit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well. All seven feet tall, like women that that size, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, how is that? It's one size fits all. It's supposed to fit. It doesn't fit. So, uh, so that's uh, what happened to all these like anatomists. They created this perfect model, this one size fits all, and they were convinced that it would like fit everything. I mean, like with, and then. Then they have the case studies. They have the all these like people who are just not fitting the model, and then they get mad because like <laughs> it's not. And so there is all this like um, uh, crazy uh, uh, thing uh, going on. And now I forgot your question. What was your question? <laughs> you know, like actually, we're good now. We're, we okay. got through that. So actually, but I, what it would be perfect now is like let's talk about an example of how uh, how the dress doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about Sebastian. Uh, oh, you can see now I, my my Spanish accent is obviously horrible, and now I'm nervous. But no, uh, no, Sebastian, you, you use your Italian. You're just Italian. It's just more or less yeah. the same. Yeah, Sebastian Nicaro Lopez. Good, good. Um, Okay, yeah. So he's a 24-year-old innkeeper, she part-time they part-time actress from Madrid whose gender and sex was ambiguous. Um so tell me about this person. Well, uh, this I I totally fell in love with this uh character uh because like the the well, first because the story represents so much many other stories that I saw I read uh, for the 18th century that were not as much uh, flesh out so that I just got like maybe four pages two pages on a case or like summary by some criminal case or like in, in, or inquisition and I couldn't like so this one sort of like it's uh it's sort of fleshed out and you can see from the beginning of the end uh, the story and it's uh, on one hand the 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 complexity of uh, human nature and sex uh, and gender and sexuality and how people were were sort of like trying to find their place in society uh, when they were not fitting the categories that were imposed to them and so the um, the story of uh, and I, I I call Lerado uh, I, I uh, Sebastian Maria um, I I struggle trying to figure out what gender I mean what pronouns to use and how to treat Lerado um, um, because I wasn't still in my in my journey 
trying to uh, uh, be a queer historian or a queer scholar. I didn't know. Uh, uh, now, I'm, the book that I'm writing, I think that I got a hang on it. Uh, and I'm, um, I, I, and now I'm, I'm more skillful using, using they all the time. But, but here, I, was, I didn't know. And so um, Leirado, Leirado has this conflict and, uh, and uh, just making a like, very, very uh, a summary of, of, of Leirado's uh, life. Um, uh, Leirado uh, is, um, comes from a family or of uh, artisans and um, tavern keepers, artisans, and then ends up inheriting uh, the family sort of business or like as um as a tavern keeper but as a child or as a young uh, boy um was um sent to become the ap- apprentice of different masters and one of the masters that uh, two of the masters that uh um he had the Leirado had was um actresses and actually they were famous and well-known actresses in Madrid and then uh, this character Leirado sort of becomes fascinated with the actresses and then starts a journey on like impersonating one of the actresses that worked for um, uh, Maria Teresa Garrido and actually uh, sort of like spreads the rumor uh, that first that the actress was uh, had been... Um, uh, um, expelled from the city of Madrid, and then uh, Leirado, she comes back as Maria, and then all her uh, lovers are supposed to call her Maria, and so 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 reinvents herself as an actress and a singer. Uh, but of course, it, this is all underground because, like you know, her day mm-hmm. job her day job is a tavern keeper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so is a is an actress and tavern keeper, and um, but the the amount of the network that this person has all over Madrid in terms of like lovers, and so it's a it's a fascinating story of how uh, the underground, if you want, queer world of Madrid work. So because it was all. Um, lovers, the same-sex lovers, and trans people, and all this, how this is, at the end of the 18th century, is sort of like defying, going against uh, any sense of a, of a normativity that wants, like, female and male bodies uh, acting in a heterosexual way. Um, and that's what I thought it was so interesting about Leirado. So um, he's sexed male at birth, right? And then and becomes a female impersonator. But then um, in chapter four, we come back to Lerado um, as in this case. So tell me, what does he, how do you learn about him? Like what, how does he enter the, the, uh, the, the criminal record? Like what happened? What is he brought up for? Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, well, the story is that one of Leirado's lovers, uh, the, uh, um, contracts, um, um, you know, uh, uh, syphilis or, uh, or, uh, I don't know, I think it's syphilis or some, um, uh, venereal, uh, 
uh, illness. Yeah. And so the mother of this young man goes to the alcalde, goes to the um, um, sort of the uh, judge or the uh, uh, criminal um, official in Madrid and denounces uh, Leirado because uh, um, uh, the mother says uh, she is a woman who dresses as a man uh, and has had, you know, has made my son uh, sick. So actually, they go first and arrest Leirado for thinking it was uh, a cross-dressed woman. So it was a woman uh, dressed as a tavern keeper, as a man. And so, uh, which is very interesting because when they go to arrest Leirado, the um, officials, the um, uh, the police um, ask him, uh, are you a man or a woman? And then Leirado answers, you see me dressed as a man, then I might, I may be a man. And so, so which is a very cryptic way of answering that. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the police says, oh, whatever, you know, we'll take you home. <laughs> <laughs> Start this out later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll take you to the prison or to the uh, to the alcalde, and um, and then uh, after they bring all these like testimonies and all this evidence, and at some point during the the, the process, then it's officially um, a case of sodomy. Um, of uh, so he's accused of uh, uh, sodomy and other misdemeanors, misdemeanors, which means like dressing, uh, cross-dressing. I mean, cross-dressing was not a um, criminal um, offense. It was a, I mean, it was a criminal, but it was a misdemeanor. So you could not be in jail for uh, cross-dressing, but you could be sort of like asked not to <laughs> cross-dress. Um, but the sodomy was a major offense. Um, and so that's how uh, he ended up in... Um, in this uh, in this process in this trial, and was um, um, you know, I don't know. Should I reveal the ending? No one is going to read it. Should I tell what? you? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, just, like, okay, spoiler alert. We're gonna re- like if you if you're gonna read and you don't want to know what's happening, stop listening now. Okay, good. I can go ahead. So, yeah. uh, so he um, uh, he uh, there is no uh, death uh, sentence, and, um, and so I mean, in this case, I mean, there were some, but he's not um, uh, killed for this. Um, uh, he's found uh, guilty. But it's sent to a remote, uh, uh, um, a remote uh, prison in uh, in Navarra, which is north of Spain, very far from Madrid, where uh, his family uh, lives. And then there, surprisingly, a few years later, there is um, there is um, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, an indo. It's called indult. So I mean, the, so so the um, the governor of uh, uh, Navarra, for some reason, decides to um, pardon the prisoners, mainly because there was some uh, outbreak of uh, of uh, an illness or some, um, uh, and then like half of the uh, uh, in inmates died, and so he ended up. Anyway, so there's no, so we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he survived and was able to go back to Madrid or, or he actually died, uh, which is most likely because he had a probably an advanced case of um, uh, 
say Phyllis, yeah. Um, um, an anecdote, I don't know if it's an anecdote, but I mean, uh, something that I thought it was like, I don't know, kind of sad or, or I don't know, is that he, one of his, uh, her, Lerado's uh, uh, claims to uh, um, womanhood was that she, she, she menstruated and um and then you know the doctors uh, claim otherwise that um that it was um it was not a menstruation but um something else you know so <laughs> i don't know so interesting this like their inability to handle we don't hermaphrodites don't exist this isn't real anymore so like if when faced with evidence to the contrary, there's just no way to make sense of that, right? So you have to deny this. I find it very interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't think, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe that's where, like, going back to the book, maybe I think that should uh, should have clarified this a little bit more. I don't think they say um, uh, hermaphrodites are non-existent. Uh, period. But they say it's just very rare. It's very unlikely. It's just possibly not. So, so they make it very hard. And um, so they, they because again, in this project, the making bodies fit into those to- two categories. It just doesn't fit that dress that I was talking about. So, like, no. so they, so they go well, and they um, come up with this a uh, idea that will become quite. Uh, um, you know, part of the medical sort of reasoning in the 19th century that they have underdeveloped uh, genitalia or overdeveloped. So they, there's this idea of um, um, of like um, defective genitals rather than hermaphrodites, uh, which um, I mean, for for those of you who've known about or study about uh, hermaphrodites before the 18th century, there was this fantastic component of hermaphrodite, this monstrous, uh, but also this, um, uh, they were called the wonders of nature. So is this like, kind of like mythical uh, past of the hermaphrodite from the Greek sort of tradition. And it's like, so they want to get rid of all this like fantasy world. It's everything needs to be tangible and real and something you can touch. So they, so, so yeah, uh, Leirado claims that he may be a hermaphrodite and that's why um, his uh, hemorrhoids are in fact to him like sign of like menstruation but he's um, he or she I keep saying he but she um, uh, uh, they Leirado is very uh, is a very uh, clever character because the way uh, Leirado constructs the um, the whole uh, argument of uh, um, the being a hermaphrodite is that others are claiming that um, that Leirado is a hermaphrodite, not 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 themselves. You know, it's like she, it's like um, so. And so that's why I think that like the the judges have a hard uh, a hard time trying to figure um, this whole matter out, and even the uh, the physicians who um, um, observe and uh, try to 
sort of decide whether Lerado was a man or a woman. Also, they also had a hard time. And um, in the curriculum of this character, you uh, we find about five or six or seven, I forget, many um, um, sort of, uh, uh, in, I don't know how to call it, many physical tests to find out the sex because it's not clear. Um, so, um, it's a point we are we won't get into, but I just want to note um, that I am continually impressed with how well uh, early modern people who find themselves on the wrong end of the early modern justice system, how well they're able to negotiate mm-hmm. that path, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps, perhaps I'm a hermaphrodite, but someone else is saying that, not me. You know, mm. it's very, it's mm. it's very mm. impressive. Um, mm. They, yeah. No, and I, and and if I uh, just to add, I think it's like the um, looking at how uh, uh, the sort of tries to navigate the ju- um, judicial system. It's fantastic because one of the things that I realized was that. Um, the fact that uh, Leirado uh, is um, l- um, is lying about uh, their age, so uh, uh, I'm claiming to be much younger than uh, Leirado was probably, or well, was she certainly was because I found the um, the um, um, the record of his uh, bab- uh, uh, the baptism. So uh, and and that is because I. Th- Thing that um, uh, they uh, knew about the um, the uh, the the younger people, uh, twenty one or younger, uh, got sometimes a more sort of uh, a less h- harsh uh, punishment, um, uh, and that that also adds to the fact that Leirado had a very good network. Uh, of uh, contacts and friends in um, Madrid's prisons and <laughs> jails, <laughs> so they they knew very well what was going on. So, so sorry, sorry, you were going to ask me more, and I stopped you. <laughs> no, that's I, I, that's great. Well, and you've already told me you fell in love with this character. You fell in love with this person and wanted to write a, the book solely about that. So I cannot be surprised that this is you want to keep talking about it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's, in the interest of time, let's wrap up. Uh, so finally, you bring us to the present with the discussion of how the 18th century debates inform 20th and 21st century debates. Um, so, you know, what, what, how, how does that work? For what can we moderns thank our 18th century forebearers? Yeah, that, uh, that was deep inside the whole purpose of this book. <laughs> Which is like connect the 18th century with present ideas of sex um, and gender. And uh, the last chapter of my book was um, was uh, difficult, uh, not so much to write, but it felt very organic. But at the same time, I thought, well, you know, Cambridge, you know, it's not gonna uh, will want to. Um, will want me to change this uh, cha- chapter because it's a, a little bit funky. Because uh, I, 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 I try to make the case of saying how much of the 18th century views of sex and gender are 
here with us and they permit and they inform and they shape the way we construct, we as Western society, or um, we construct sex and how much and how difficult it is to get rid of this, um, this um, sort of binary um, construction of sex and gender. And I claim, well, I blame uh, the uh, the 18th century people for that. Although at some point, uh, you know, I think in the introduction, I was really, really in the introduction. It said like, I say that, oh, um, that uh, everyone is entitled to like, you know, failure or whatever. <laughs> so the, uh, the 18th century uh, thinkers um, were not perfect. So they, they, they were trying to construct this, what I call this brave new world and like this vision of like future and happiness that they had. And they didn't really get it right, but they tried, you know. Uh, so that's, and, uh, yeah. So we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we probably don't, 200 years from now, assuming we're even still around, um, they'll look back at us and wonder what we've done. Uh-huh. I am hoping. Oh, Yana, I lost you. <laughs> yeah, I lost you as well. All right. So uh, let's pick up from here. Okay. So um, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. But before we go, I have one last question. Yeah. So you're almost done with a new book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited. I am very excited. Tell us about it. Well, and it's, um, it goes well when I just finished uh, saying about the um, how the 18th century shapes the uh, uh, modern uh, notions of uh, sex and gender, because uh, that, that um, is uh, at the core of my next book, which uh, the, has a title of Trans Confessions from the Inquisition to the Internet. So I'm looking over a long period of time from the 1500s to the present, um, uh, transgender narratives uh, that are expressed in, uh, you, in form of confession. So declaring the truth of oneself um, as, uh, and sort of revealing this, uh, the authentic uh, self through um, this uh, confessional uh, genre. And uh, in this, I, I want to explore how um, transgender uh, narratives and literature that I have been so much um, of great interest of people in the past 20 years, it's something that it's not new and it's not even recent history. It's not like tw- 19th or 20th century, but it's something that um, one can uh, find it's shaping um, sort of notions of uh, gender and uh, sort of queerness, um, you know, as early as one can trace, but I start in the uh, uh, 1500s um, and it covers several countries. So like the Spanish and Iberian world, of course, but also France and England, um, Germany, um, the United States and uh, Canada, so the the Western um, sort of uh, societies, yeah. European diaspora. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh wow, that is! I'm so excited about that. I can't wait to. I uh, cannot wait to read it. I'm, I want you uh, if you need any eyes on it before, because I am that eager. Um, 
uh, it's fascinating. The uh, there's so many questions there, um, and it, I think this really it's incredibly ambitious. Uh, but I think it really has some great potential to, to help us rethink and reframe these debates. Aha! Uh-huh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'm. I. You know. I should be done sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, added, the hidden benefit of COVID, some of us are getting work done. Some of us, myself, not so much, but um, all right. So thank you so much. And uh, I will be in touch about doing yeah. another one of these for the new book as well. Thank you. Well, <laughs> good luck with everything. Your uh, your program is fantastic. I'm going to subscribe to all these apps and uh, get into uh, the new role of podcasts. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not so new. But you know, <laughs> it is news relative. Brave new world indeed. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Ciao. Thank you. Ciao.